the actual message tonight. So first thing I want to make sure you're aware of is obviously Nerf Night is coming up uh, this coming Wednesday. So if you have children or grandchildren that are in there, be inviting them to that. Um, don't forget also about um, Fast Cars coming up February 18th. And so uh, anyone is welcome to attend that event. Anyone is welcome to come out for that. So if you uh, have children or grandchildren in that uh, ministry and Word of Life, invite them or encourage them to invite somebody to come out. So uh, that's going on February 18th. Again, our missionary with Word of Life, Mike Van Bruggen, will be with us. And so I want to encourage you to be praying for him as he shares the message. Um, Obviously, the gospel will go forth. And this is a big uh, day for Word of Life as far as outreach. So I want to be praying that the uh, gospel will go forth and children will come to know Christ or dedicate their life to the Lord. So I'll be praying for that. Um, Also want to let you know, we have our quilting event coming up in February. Uh, We have our annual business meeting coming up here uh, a week from tonight. And so don't forget forget about that. The example uh, ballot was in the bulletin. And so I'll be praying over that, thinking over those names. I'll be asking the Lord for wisdom on that. And so I'll be taking part in that. So again, members, uh, very much want to encourage you to be a part of uh, next Sunday night. Um, We're also going to share a lot of things about this last year, what the Lord has done in blessing us as a church, uh, the growth that he's given us in so many ways, um, financially, how God has been blessing. And then also we're going to talk about funds for floors and talk about where we're at with that up to this point and how we pray the Lord will continue to give us growth in that. And so uh, saying that, if you haven't grabbed an envelope in a while, please feel free to do so. Um, Again, once all the envelopes are gone, that's when we're going to be able to get the flooring in the church done. So uh, we started that in the spring, uh, I think right before Easter. So it's been a while, uh, but I, I just can't wait to share with you uh, what the Lord has done in that and how, how far we've come, even in that time. So, uh, but let's be praying about next week. Hopefully you can be with us. Um, those are the big announcements. Also, don't forget, um, I think the Sisters in Christ, the folders are out there on the table. If you didn't grab yours today yet, you can do that again, and all the information you need is in there. So uh, those are the big things I wanted to share. I think that's all the announcements. Unless there's any questions or comments or anything, we'll jump in to our devotion. All right. So last week we covered the first commandment of the 10 commandments of progressive Christianity and the kind of review, uh, someone kind of, uh, described for me when we say progressive Christianity. Um, now we, as uh, followers of Christ, and as we try to apply the Bible to our lives, we understand that it is a, a false teaching, but how, how else could we describe other than false teaching, um, how else could we describe what we've been describing as progressive Christianity? What's another title we could give that, another label we could give that? Okay, yeah, liberal Christianity, right? Uh, and liberal not in the political sense, okay? So some people are like, well, if conservative Christianity is Republican, then liberal Christianity is Democrat. That's not what we mean, okay? Uh, we're talking about liberal in the sense that it revolves around the individual. So when I go to Scripture and I'm understanding Scripture, it's not anything other than what I see scripture to say and mean. So I apply it to myself first and I go, okay, it has to mean this because this is how I read it. This is my experience telling me that. The next scope of interpretation goes to just human understanding. So a humanism. So for example, the first six days of Genesis and creation, that can't be true, right? Because The world says, and science, quote-unquote, says that's impossible. So we use that as a starting point instead of the Word of God. We look through that lens instead of saying, no, the Word of God declares it. That's where I start. And so it's this very liberal, very um, humanistic, culturally driven understanding of God's Word. And so progressive Christianity is just a new 
title given to that same thinking. Uh, this is becoming more and more prevalent in the church, this idea of progressive Christianity, where more and more people are giving into this kind of teaching. Now, we talked about it last week. Does anyone remember what the first commandment was? If you took notes, maybe you got it written down. What was the first commandment that we said of progressive Christianity? Yeah, Renee. Yes. The first commandment of progressive Christianity or the first statement of their beliefs would be that Jesus is a model to, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is an example to model. That's it. As a model of living more than an object of worship. Okay. So an, an example, we're looking at the example that Jesus lived, his morality. It's more important that we talk about that than we worship him or rather encourage others to worship him. And this is really, really prevalent nowadays. This is a really prevalent idea. This is kind of that, what maybe gets called feel-good Christianity, felt-needs Christianity. Uh, it's really, as we've discovered, though, not Christianity. Now, the first commandment removes the divinity of Christ. And anything that takes away Christ being the Son of God, God himself, you can't then call that biblical Christianity. You've, you've already removed what is the core of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ... The Son of God, God himself, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. That's the core of Christianity. That's the gospel. And anyone who believes in Christ will be saved from their sins. If you remove the divinity, the, the, the divine nature of Christ, and make him just a moral teacher, or, as some would say, he was a moral man up to the age of 30, then the Christ which is just this conceptual, spiritual thing out here, overlapped with the person of Jesus for three years. Then Jesus died and the Christ continued on. Some would even teach that, that yeah, he was divine, but only in the sense that for that earthly ministry, but before that he was just a normal human being. But the problem comes in, if he was just a normal human being, then he wasn't sinless. So again, we have to be careful here that we don't just hear these teachings and just kind of fall for those ways of thinking. And so we've been unpacking this the last couple of weeks. I've given you some examples of those that would teach this. One individual that we showed some examples of, I referenced some examples of, uh, would be Richard Rohr and then Philip Gully were two individuals that wrote, basically, um, one wrote a series of devotionals, uh, about 10 different devotionals, and that's where we get these 10 statements from. So these are things that those in the progressive Christianity movement are saying. We're not putting words in their mouth. So these things are coming right from their own resources. And one of the other things that we warned you about, and I just want to review this for a second too, because it's something we got to remember. What is a kind of a tactic of some of these authors, and we talked about this over the last couple of weeks, when they title their books or their messages, or their devotional series, they, they kind of try to get a little sneaky with some language in what they call these things. What were we kind of talking about that, that they might slip into the title or slip into the devotional series to get us to kind of think differently about these things? Yeah. So sometimes you hear things like the essentials of the faith. Or what one, one of the writings was, what if the church was Christian? The rediscovering the values of Jesus Christ. That rediscovering implies this is how it always was. And then only within the last couple hundred years, we as a church got off track. And we forgot the original, the essential beliefs. And we colluded or polluted it with all these things. And we, we missed the point. If we could just get back to that, then we'd be fine. But what's funny about that is when you go back to the essentials of our faith historically... 
It's what the Bible has always declared to be true. And we established that. Richard Rohr, and I, we showed some video teachings of his, and um, I'm really glad Avi wasn't here when we showed that because I think she might have just destroyed the church building, tear the screen down, throw an ash on the screen. It would have been crazy. But when we think about this, we showed some video teachings of his. And if you remember, some of the things that they want to get rid of in progressive Christianity are things like sin, right? We actually call it original sin, okay? Avi, did you have a question? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, I did not know that. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Every year they, they do those kind of things. You're right. And, but that's the point. What, we remove sin because, and, and Richard Rohr said it, right? We should not focus on our identity before Christ being wrapped up in Genesis 3 but in Genesis 1 and 2, which I agree with him. We've said this. I agree that we were made in the image of God, right? By the way, that's the only reason you have intrinsic value and worth based apart from your race, your gender, your income, your talents, your skills. None of that gives you value or worth. In God's eyes, every human being has value and worth because they were created in the image of God. And we should see value in that, should we not? You want to talk about self-esteem, the best, now I don't like that term, but the best way to see yourself as worth or valuable is not to look at the culture. It's not to look at the outside and to look at what you think is all about that. It's to go to God's word and go, man, I was made in the image of God. I'm valuable. But we can't stop there. Now I love, and when he says this, he, he wants to get us to stop there. And he goes, well, we shouldn't be talking about some, this is his words, a supposed sin between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Because God surely isn't mad that some people ate an apple. That's what he said. And if you watch the video, the room he was teaching this to laughed at that. And we said that. We said that's a terrifying moment. Because they're not laughing in the face of Richard Rohr or conservative Christianity. They're laughing in the face of God. They're mocking God. By the way, it wasn't an apple, but we won't go down that theological road. I remember when a kid in my Romans class, we were talking about something. He goes, yeah, when they ate the apple. And it was like, everybody was just like, it's a bust out laughing. Like, you don't really believe it was an apple, do you? And they started arguing about what fruit it could be. And I was like, okay, listen, I know we're all freshmen in a, you know, Bible college, but we need to not argue about these kind of things. But that just happened all the time. So snack shop theology 101. That's what we used to call that. But when you think about this, there's so much of this teaching, though, that when you remove sin, right? Well, you're not a sinner. No, you're fine. Right? You remove sin, then you remove the need for a savior. If I have no sin, then I have no need of a savior. So if I remove the need of a savior, then I'm really okay. And if I'm okay, then I'm going to get to heaven on my own. And if there's no sin, then there's no hell because there's no consequence for sin, which is being cast into hell. So I'm good. God is loving and God is so loving. He would never send anyone to hell. And I don't need to worry about going to hell because I don't have any sin. And it's supposed to make us feel better and, and, you know, more positive about ourselves. But I think it's the greatest deception of the enemy. Because it actually robs us of our true value and worth. That's one of the reasons why I strongly dislike the teaching of evolution. Just because it removes your value. You were formed by God with intelligent design. You weren't just a 
accidental oops when this and this bumped into each other and human beings. That was a real scientific definition, I know. You probably didn't stay with me on that one, so I can re-say that later, explain that later. But, But I want us to understand this. This is why we're doing this. Because this teaching, as we said this morning, and we've said for the last couple of weeks, it's out there. I mean, YouTube, you can watch so many videos. And listen, when you listen to people in this realm teach, man, they're good as far as how they teach it. And they can get you all turned around and twisted. And thinking, man, maybe there's something to this. And I pointed this out with the one video where Richard Rohr tried to quote St. Ignatius in 108. And he tried to claim that, that these villages were coming or be called followers of Christ or Christians, not because they were trying to get to heaven, but because they had dignity, they understood their dignity and their worth. And Ignatius said, this is a Catholic religion, meaning this is a universal religion, that all are followers of Christ. And it sounds really good until you dive into the history and you realize that's not exactly what Ignatius had said. And in fact, Ignatius, as we said, fought against heresy. Instead, if somebody denies that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh, they're a heretic and not to be trusted. He wasn't saying it's a Catholic religion because they found dignity. They they were Christians because they were followers of Jesus. They put their faith and trust in Christ. That's the universal body of Christ, those that have placed their faith and trust in Christ. So again, it sounds good until you get past that surface and you start diving into what they're really saying and it'll all fall apart. So what we're doing through this study if you're new with us, is we're kind of breaking apart these Ten Commandments. Um, actually, and I've said this before, I'll try not to say it every week, but just so you know where we're getting information from. Uh, an individual by the name of Michael Kruger wrote a book critiquing the Ten Commandments and of uh, the progressive Christianity, and that's the reference that I read, which kind of led to this series, this study. So let's dive into the Second Commandment. This ties right in with everything we've been teaching. So some of this might be a little bit redundant. So the second commandment, affirming people's potential, affirming people's potential, and this is right in that vein of what we were just talking about, is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. One more time. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Okay. Does anyone need that repeated? Good. Okay. So, again, do you hear the half-truth? Do you hear the, the, the again, just that a hinting at, well, well, you wouldn't deny someone has potential, would you? You don't want to constantly be reminding people of their brokenness. I mean, that's not healthy. And they'll start playing with these words. And again, they'll tell you, well, we're not denying that there's sin in the world. We're not denying that there's evil in the world. Because we're not saying that doesn't exist. We're just saying more importantly than that is teaching them their potential. Which is exactly what the first commandment tried to do. We're not saying Jesus isn't an object of worship. We're just saying... That following his example is more important. But we discovered that, in fact, what they really were saying was to deny his divinity from the author Gully's own words. So what is this really saying? What is this commandment, this statement? And really what's funny is this is a confessional statement. 
these 10 statements that Richard Rohr and Gully kind of affirm, they're really just confessional statements. And we're familiar in church history with confessional statements or creeds. Uh, one of the most famous would be the Apostles' Creed, just a statement of faith. These simple statements uh, share or affirm our beliefs about something. And that's really what this is. So what is this saying? One of the major issues that divide progressive Christianity from historical or true Christianity is the issue of sin or our brokenness. Do you notice even in the commandment, they won't say sin. They don't say of their sin. He says their brokenness. And we start changing those words, as Avi alluded to. Our culture does this, right? Changing the word just a little bit. This is, uh, by the way, a lot of times, I don't know if you're like me, but in my Christian life, there's times where I'll sin in some way. And I'll go to the Lord to ask for forgiveness and I'll be repenting of that. And even in between me and the Lord, I'll say, Lord, forgive me for this mistake. And then I have to pause and say, no, 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 Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me for this sin. And I try to be very specific about that sin. Because often we start to do that even as Christians. Now, I know when we say mistake, we don't necessarily, we're not denying it was a sin. But I'm just showing you as an example, we can start to change even how we think of these things by what we call these things. The question that arises in this discussion would be, are people sinners? And this is just kind of from the author, some things that he was trying to draw out. Are people sinners? If so, how big of a deal is that? And more than that, how important is it that we tell them? How do we balance people's sinfulness with their potential as God's image bearers? And so if you're talking to someone who's in this realm of thinking, the question they're going to have is, okay, are we really sinners? If we really are sinners, then how big of a deal is that? How much time do we spend on that? How much energy do we spend on that versus their potential as God's image bearers? Again, progressive Christianity lives in the world of half-truths. We must see that, yes, and by the way, as Christians, we can affirm this. Humanity has potential for what God desires us to be. However, we cannot ignore the sin that has corrupted us and led to brokenness. So I want you to think about this because this is... This is Understanding this can help us to really communicate this to someone else as far as when they're struggling with this. We cannot deny that humanity has potential to be all that God has called us to be. If God calls us to those things, then there's a potential to be those things. It's okay to affirm that. It's okay to say, you have value as we just spent time doing. You have worth. You have value. You have purpose. Like the things you're doing matter. And I've said this before. It's even okay as Christians to affirm the good things in the world that aren't necessarily Christian. What do I mean by that? If Red Cross goes into an area and is feeding the poor, providing medical attention, doing all these great good things, as a Christian, I don't have to sit back and go, well, yeah, but they're not preaching the gospel. We don't have to point that out. Now, would it be great when ministries like Samaritan's Purse go in and do those things and preach the gospel? Amen. But I can acknowledge and say, man, thank you to Red Cross volunteers who go out there and do this work because it's, it matters. We can acknowledge that as a good thing. But again, we sometimes as Christians, we can go the other way too far and we won't even acknowledge the good things in the world. We want to always just jump to what's missing. Now, again, we can address those things, but I think it needs to be done in the right way. However, while we can fully acknowledge the good and fully acknowledge the good things people are doing and say, man, I'm so thankful for these people, we also can at the exact same time 
in a conversation with someone, acknowledge that we have sinned. We have fallen. We are not perfect. We are broken. And we need forgiveness. Again, first, we must acknowledge that the Christian message is not only about our sin and brokenness. Yes, we have sinned. But that is not all that is shared with that individual. Christ saves us from our sin, but that saving leads to the renewing work of Christ in us to restore the beauty of God's image within us. So we got to be careful here. Some of you grew up in churches where they, they majored in sin. It was like every Sunday was like, you're a sinner and you're going to burn. Right? Turn or burn. Right? I was at one thing and they were talking about fire insurance. You need to get your fire insurance. And I was like, we've, we've gone too far. <laughs> this is getting ridiculous. And sometimes as Christians, in certain circles, we can just get so just hammering on sin. Should it be discussed? Yes. Does it need to be talked about? Yes. But we got to be so careful. We don't major in that. Because guess what? When we come to Christ and we repent of our sins and are saved, guess who doesn't bring our sin up anymore? God. And so, again, we don't go, well, it's no big deal. It's a very big deal that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So much so that Jesus had to die for our sins. But let's be careful that in dealing in that area, we don't spend so much time making people think that that's all the Christian message is about. But we can't go the other way and just go, well, we're just going to abandon sin altogether like some circles have done. Because we're worried about offending people. No, we need to share that there's brokenness. But we can also share, secondly, while we can say that humanity has potential, that is only made possible through the gracious gospel that God has shared with us. Apart from Christ, humanity is lost and dead in our sin. So I want you to get this. This is why progressive Christianity is so dangerous. It wants us to run away from one end and only embrace one side of this conversation. Oh, yes. Sorry. Um, so secondly, while we can say that humanity has potential that is only made possible through the gracious gospel that God has given us. And then the second part was apart from Christ, humanity is lost and dead in our sin. Okay. The author of the book that I referenced, Mr. Kruger says it this way, put differently, we must affirm both our deep depravity and the amazing potential we have as God's image bearers. The two belong together. So you can't remove one from the other. We are the image bearers of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that that was taken away. It says it was perverted and corrupted in the fall. But we still are the image bearers of God. Right? He made us in his image. By the way, I keep using that phrase. What do I mean by made in the image of God? We know God doesn't have a form like this, right? So what do I mean when I say we're made in the image of God? What, is, what does Genesis mean when it says that? Right. Mm -hmm. Yep, those attributes that we have, things like compassion, our emotions, right? We can express our emotions. By the way, that expressing emotion isn't intrinsically sinful. 
the reason we have a problem now is because of the fall, right? But I believe Adam and Eve showed love to one another and expressed that innocently and perfectly and godly, right? The problem is that after the fall, we have these same emotions, but we don't express them or handle them righteously, right? So our attributes, the fact that we have these emotions and things of that nature, that we are able to have compassion and those kind of things. How else would you describe being made in the image of God? Julie. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, yes, I agree. Yeah, human beings are eternal, right? Meaning that our soul will live forever somewhere, right? Either in heaven or in hell. It will be forever. That's why we don't believe in annihilationism, where when we die, apart from Christ, we're just gone, okay? We believe our soul will go on. We're eternal beings, okay? Any other thoughts to when you think about being made in the image of God, what comes to your mind? How, how would you describe that to someone? How about the fact that we have a will, right? We can make decisions. We can choose A or B. And what do we use to determine those A or B decisions? We have a intelligence, right? God has intelligence. We have intelligence. He gave us intelligence. We can think, right? We can communicate those thoughts, okay? Again, compared to the animal kingdom. Yes, animals have a certain level of instinct, and they'll make a decision. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat, but we have a will that we can determine things in our life. We can make judgments on these things different than the animal kingdom. Yes. Yep. Yeah, we can create works of beauty. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've always said that every doctor, whether they're a believer or not, if they have intelligence to perform a surgery, I believe God gave them that ability. And that's, again, that's different. A dog is not going to commit or have surgery on another dog. Like, that's not going to happen, right? Again, we're separate. We're created in the image of God. So again, I want to make sure we understand that because when we think about this idea, I don't want to just throw phrases around without really understanding what it means and why we are different. So I want to go to a passage in scripture that helps us understand this potential. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to go there. So Ephesians chapter 2, So Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we, we know the beginning of this passage, uh, verses 1, really down through verse 8, 9. We understand this passage is talking about the fact that we naturally are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we need God to bring us new life, to give us new life in Christ, that apart from the gospel, we cannot be saved, right? It talks about that we are saved by grace, through faith. Right? Not of works that we have done. There's no morality here. We're not saved because of what I've done for God. We're saved purely by the grace of God for us. Right? Why is that? So that his grace would be glorified. Right? That generations to come, ages to come, would glorify the displaying of God's grace. But I want to look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in. In them. I love this verse. It's, it's honestly, it's kind of funny. Most people go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and they'll say, that's my favorite verse in that passage. And I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Don't get me wrong. But verse 10, to me, is so powerful for the believer. Now, some of you have different translations. Does anyone have a different word for workmanship? For we are his workmanship. Yes, Avi. Yeah. 
Masterpiece? Creation? Any other words used there? Handiwork? Okay. So the word here is actually poema. It means poem in the Greek. So we are God's poem. What does that mean? And it's understanding we are God's masterpiece. We're his piece of art. We're his sculpture. We're his grace on display. So the world looks at us. All of creation looks at us. And they see in you, because of verses 1 through 9, they see in you something that doesn't make sense. Lost and undone, dead in sin, the gospel was preached. You responded by faith. God gave you new life, eternal life. And now you are forgiven, redeemed, and set for the course of heaven as a child of God. And you are displaying in your very being the wonder, the beauty of the grace of God. You are a masterpiece on display. And to me, that's the greatest way to define our potential. When people say, what's the potential for humanity? As a follower of Christ, it's this. It's that our lives would be a declaration of God's grace. That people will look at your life and say, I can do nothing but praise God for his grace and see God's grace in you. And you get none of the glory. You get none of the attention. It's all going to him. I've shared this before. One of the things that in ministry that has taken me a long time, I'm still not comfortable with it, but I'm more comfortable with it. And I even don't like referring to this because then I feel like the next week I hear it more. Um, I'm, I'm really not doing it for that reason, but I just want to be transparent for a second. When I started really preaching here at the church, it was funny. Like I would you know, be back by the door there or people come to me and say, great message, preacher. That was great. And I honestly, just so you and I are clear, I don't like hearing that in one regard because I don't want people to say, you preached a great message, preacher. So what I do is I try to say, and I really do mean it, you know, glory to God, all praise to God. It's all from his word. When people will message me, man, that message really spoke to me. I'm so glad God's word spoke to you. Now, I do appreciate when people say great message because usually what they mean is it spoke to them in some way. And I love that as a pastor to hear that. But to me, it's not about me. It's not, I have zero ability, zero. There are quite literally probably Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of individuals that could do what I do a thousand times better. I know because I listen to some of them online. And I'm always like, now that's how you preach that message. But I get what people mean when they say that. Oh, that was a great message. But I want us to be careful here. This potential is not really to glorify you. You're just a piece of art hanging on the wall. And when you walk into a gallery, you see that piece of art, you're like, wow, that's beautiful. But you don't walk up and go, thank you, Canvas, for being available. Man, frame, thank you for just outlining this painting. Oh, it's beautiful. To you, red color, you are just great. What do people usually do? They look at the little plaque under or the name on the painting and go, wow, so-and-so, the artist, did a great job. And this is beautiful. And that's what Ephesians 2 really is emphasizing. People look at your life and they see the signature of the artist and they go, man, he is an amazing artist. And we just say, yeah, praise God. Again, that doesn't mean we can't compliment each other, say thank you to people. I understand all that. But I want us to see our potential is not that we are glorified, but our true potential as human beings, by the way, this is why we were created, is to have a relationship with God, to be with him forever, and to glorify him forever. And so when we talk about potential, yes, we need to affirm people's potential. 
But don't be short, so short-sighted that you think it's only in this world that your potential lies. Your potential is far beyond that instrument that you're trying to learn or that career that you're trying to be successful at or the income in your bank account or the house that you think you need or whatever. That's not all your potential is. That's thinking so small. Man, your potential as a follower of Christ is that the world would see your life and say, I need to give glory to God. Man, that's where our potential lies. That's what's available to us only because of verses 1 through 9 of Ephesians 2. See, verse 10, out of context, could really make you think you're all that. Right? I mean, people think this. Well, God's all about me. God's always going to do what makes me happy. God's all about me. I mean, he died for me. He loves me. But when you really study the scriptures, you'll find out that every time God did something for humanity, often, if it's not directly stated, it's implied other places, it was for his glory. How many times does he tell Israel, I'm not doing this for you, Israel. I'm doing this for you, but really it's for my namesake. I'm doing this for you and you're blessed by it, but it's so I'm glorified. And so again, we have to keep this in the right context. Yes, you have amazing potential. And I truly believe that if you will surrender your life to him, he will take you places you can't even imagine. And he'll give you gifts and talents and skills that will be used for him. But we have to keep it in the right framework that this only happens because of the gospel. That apart from this, your potential is only in this world apart from Christ. Your successes will only be in this world. Your praise will only be in this world. It'll all be to you and it'll all be fleeting. There's so much more available to followers of Christ. And so in progressive Christianity, the danger of this teaching is not so much that it affirms people's potential. It robs them of understanding who they can really be in Christ. It limits who they really can be. Also in this teaching, as we move through this quickly, I've got a page and a half left and 15 minutes. So y'all need to pray. Um, so for, not only does this teach the wrong idea about that, but it also obviously rejects the Bible's teaching on sin. It rejects the clear teaching of scripture on sin. Some progressives will say that they do acknowledge sin and evil in the world and in mankind. But what to do about it, they are not so sure. Some progressives will tell you, oh yeah, I believe in evil. I mean, look around, you can't deny evil, right? I mean, look around the world. Even Richard Rohr will say, oh, I believe there's evil in the world. Which you have to acknowledge that because what do people do every single day? Evil things to each other. And I, that's one of the reasons why I don't like that we have instant, like, news media. Because, man, it's like, I kind of really didn't want to know that just happened. Right? So evil's in the world. So they acknowledge that. But when you ask them, well, what do you do about that? They're either going to go to a moralistic view where it says just be a better person, be a good person, and let that change your area of influence. Or they'll say it's because nobody affirmed their potential. They will do everything they can to ignore original sin and a fallen nature. So what do you do about it? Well, Gully's book that I've referred to a few times, which is based on, or which Roar's list is based on, makes it clear that he does not affirm sin as something needed to be addressed. So I'm going to give you four different quotes from his own writing, his own words on this idea of either affirming potential or focusing on brokenness. So this is Gully's book, which again, Rohr referenced this in his writings. These are quotes. Churches that regularly teach that people are sinners are guilty of spiritual abuse and mistreatment of their people. 
Goldie goes on to say, I had grown up in a tradition that emphasized sin and the need of salvation, hadn't found it helpful, and resolved to leave it behind. So this is another thing you hear too. People say things like, I left that behind. Well, you know, when I was younger, I heard those things. But when I grew up, I realized how foolish those things were. What's the indication there? What's the implication they want you to think? Well, if I was a grown-up and mature, I would think about these things in the right way. But silly children think about these, fab- these fables in this book. And it's trying to get, you need to leave that behind. Deconstruction, which we've talked about before too, is a popular word right now where people are supposedly deconstructing their faith. Really, there, a lot of them are just asking questions, which are fine. But we as followers of Christ, when you have that kind of crisis of your faith and you're not sure what you believe, it's when you go to God's word and say, I want God's word to affirm what I believe. I want to base my views in God's word. That's not deconstruction. That's reformation if you didn't believe it before. But these individuals are like, I'm deconstructing. I'm getting away from all this junk, this spiritual abuse that I went through as a child. Because they dared to teach me about sin and brokenness. Again, it's just a wrong understanding. But did you hear also in that second quote, What's the standard of truth in his life? He said, I had grown up in a tradition that emphasized sin and the need of salvation. Hadn't found it helpful and resolved to leave it behind. Where's his plumb line of truth? What does he use to determine what's right and wrong? Yeah. Is this helpful to me? Does this benefit me? Does this make me feel good? Well, it didn't make me feel good to hear that I was a sinner needing salvation, so I left that behind. Again, Could there be traditions out there that overemphasize sin and beat people up with it? Yes, I already acknowledged that's not how we should be teaching that. But again, if I had to pick a church that's going to get the gospel right more than wrong, it's going to be the one that at least emphasizes sin versus the one that ignores it altogether. I think it was Edwards that says if you preach 90% law and 10% grace, people will come to Christ. They need to know they have a disease before they know there's a cure. But again, we don't need to harp on it, beat people up with it. We need to just share the truth of Scripture. Another quote to give us another idea of what this mindset looks like. Gully in his writings denies original sin, Genesis 3, on the grounds that Adam and Eve were not real people and the creation account cannot be trusted. So again, do you see what happens here? Oh, Genesis, you know, it really doesn't matter whether you take it literal or figurative. It's fine. If you remove Adam and Eve, there's no original sin. If there's no original sin, Romans 5 is no longer needed, which says that sin entered in because of one man and righteousness through another. Well, if that's not the case, then we don't need Jesus. Again, it's just removing original sin so that we can feel better about ourselves. So how do I remove it? Well, I can't deny that Scripture says it, so I'll just say that Scripture didn't really mean that. And this is a tactic that so many in this circle will use. They'll pick scripture verses that make Jesus look like a great moral figure, but then deny the scripture verses where he says, I am, over and over again. Another quote. Gully argues we should stop viewing ourselves as wretched sinners, deserving of damnation. He laments the hymn, Amazing Grace, because it speaks of God saving sinners. Doesn't like the song Amazing Grace because it speaks of God saving sinners. Although the individual who wrote that song was overwhelmed by the grace of God to save him from his sin. The Bible is clear from Genesis 3 and the fall of, from the fall to Paul's powerful writing of Romans. We see that we are born sinners who need a savior. So this teaching 
not only robs us of our true potential in Christ, and who we really can be in, the, in eternity's eyes, it removes and rejects the Bible's teaching on sin, and it also rejects the saving work of Christ. Rejecting the biblical view of sin leads to a need to find a different reason why Christ died on the cross. So think about this is not just random things. This is all connected. I believe there is a plot of the enemy that, again, we have to remove the cross. We have to get rid of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. But the problem is too many people know that Jesus died on the cross. Some people will tell you, well, the Bible says that, but I don't trust the Bible. And there's no other evidence outside of the Bible that tells us about Jesus. There's tons of extra biblical evidence. Three to four different historians of Greek, Roman, and Jewish backgrounds, none of which were fans of Jesus, all record either the followers of Christ following a man called Christ who died on a cross, or specifically saying that Pontius Pilate nailed Jesus to a cross. It's accounted for in historical records. Josephus, uh, forgetting the, the, the other guy's name, Cicero, I think was his name. There's three to four different historical accounts of these things. So if he doesn't die for our sins, because sin's not a problem and Genesis 3 isn't even there, well, man, we got to find a way to describe why did Jesus then die on the cross? Now, in doing this, they actually deny the theological term is the substitutionary atonement. And I'm always amazed in theological terms or groups or circles why they have to say it, substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? He died as your substitute. Wouldn't that just be easier to say it that way? But they got to say it fancy. But anyway, substitutionary atonement. So what does that mean? That means that I should have died on the cross, but Jesus graciously took my place on the cross. And when I receive Christ as my Savior, by grace, through faith, his righteousness is given to me, and my sin is placed on him. It's a beautiful exchange. And that's what we mean when we say that, that we believe the Bible teaches that Jesus died in our place for our sins. Now, in church history, there have been other doctrines taught on why Christ died on the cross. Some believe that Jesus had to pay a ransom to Satan due to a misunderstanding of when the Bible speaks about him being in Hades. Some believe that he had to die in uh, a way to uh, affirm the sacrificial system, but not necessarily paying for our sins. And so there's some different views in church history. However, the Bible is clear, and the majority of church history is clear, that Jesus died in our place for our sins. 1 Corinthians, I'll give you that as a reference. 1 Corinthians, we'll go there together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The other verse I'll give you for taking notes. We won't turn there for time's sake. But Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And again, remember, we're going to connect it with Galatians 4. We'll reference it in just a second here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, 
according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Galatians 4 says the same thing, that he died for our sins. Now, Christ, go ahead, what? So there's two, one, one pr- primary way that I've heard it described, and I, I've really not, these are ones I don't understand, because to me it's so clear. The one thing that was told to me by somebody that would definitely be in this group was that, that because Paul, again, this is what we can do when we take scripture not to be literal, not inerrant, not infallible, that the apostle Paul was hung up on sin, that the apostle Paul viewed it this way. But that wasn't God's position. That Paul took his own understandings and put it on God and said, well, this is why Jesus died. But they would say, this this is again, removing the inspiration, removing scripture as an authority. This was Paul's previous Jewish religious background influencing this. This is also what they would say with the prophets. Some of the prophets talk about judgment, condemnation, damnation, and all of that. They'll tell you, no, 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 no. That was the prophets that were all worked up around that stuff. But God, and this is what they'll do. And you're like, wait, but it says this and this. They'll say, but the prophets aren't how we understand who the father is. Paul's not how we understand who the father is. We really know the father through Jesus. And they'll say to you, Didn't Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? And then what they do is they, again, out of context and strategically, pick out the verses of Jesus' ministry that make Jesus sound loving, gracious, kind, non-judgmental, non-condemning. And they paint this picture. And there's so many holes in it, it's ridiculous. But when you start to challenge them over here, and I've had this conversation with someone where I'm like, well, what, what about this? Well, well, that doesn't mean that. That means this. And then they'll go, now over here, and they'll change the topic. And you're like, well, we're still talking about this. So again, when you don't affirm Scripture as uh, inspired, infallible, without error, right, as, as the Word of God, cover to cover, you can then just kind of mold it and shape it, and we pull this out and put it over there. Well, that's man's opinion. That's Paul's opinion. Sometimes they'll do this with other things too, where Paul talks about men and women and the roles there. Well, that was cultural. That was this. That was that. We don't take that. And they'll pick and choose. Now, are there things in Scripture that we have to understand in context? Yes. The law, for example. We understand the law is not over us. It's fulfilled in Christ. So we don't give ourselves to the law. We take it in context. They would argue, well, I'm doing the same thing. I'm just doing it with a New Testament understanding. But they're really not. They're mishandling and misapplying the word of God. So that's what I've had someone who I would say is very much in this camp. That's the defense. And this person actually speaks and travels around and has a ministry ministry and has a following and all these kind of things. Now they've kind of moved clear into basically universalism, which is where just everybody goes to heaven, which is pretty much, again, progressive Christianity. And their view was, well, that's just, and I asked them, I said, well, what about when people say, when the apostles said, you need to be, you know, forgiven for your sin? He came back with, the problem wasn't a sin problem, it was a lack of the son problem. And he meant, they just needed Jesus Christ. We don't need to harp on one sin or sin, they just need Jesus. And when I said, right, because he saved us from our sins, he died for our sins, he said, no, 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 no. 
Because Jesus, and this is what I was going to say, this is the other way they get around why Jesus had to die on the cross. They, he said this. Rohr and these other guys would agree with this too. Jesus died on the cross to show us. Hear that? Show us? What is that? An example. To show us how much he loves us. Because he took the worst that humanity could do to him and loved us anyway. So we follow that example and we love others. And no matter what, we love them and we care for them, no matter what they do to us. Again, in some circles, that would get, it is, it's ridiculous. But I, I'm just going to, I'm telling you guys, I've, I've heard someone say something like that in a setting, a church, a church setting kind of thing. Amens came from the crowd. Because when you tell people, Right. But that's where, so this is what the person said. Right. So this is what that person would say. And this is, again, I, I don't agree with this, but this is what that person would say. They would say that everyone goes to heaven when we die because Jesus loved us so much. God loves us so much that he's going to, originally he would say he's going to cover our sin for us because Christ died on the cross. That view changed into now we don't talk about sin. But when I asked them that very thing, well, then what does it matter what I believe? I'm going to do whatever I want. Who cares? His comment to me was, and this one individual, was everyone, more or less, everyone goes to heaven. Although he wouldn't completely say that. I've also seen universalists don't come right out and say that. But they basically do say that. Everyone goes to heaven. However, those who receive Christ get to experience the peace, the joy, all the things that we would agree you, that comes in receiving Christ, right? The fruits of the spirit, the joy, the love, all those things. He would say, when you follow Christ as, and you receive Christ as your savior, you get to experience all that this side of heaven. I agree with that. But then he went on to say, so those that don't receive Christ, they just don't get to experience that life this side of heaven. So they're robbed of that blessing. Um, I'm with you. Yeah, I agree with that. And then he throws on the end, but because God is love, everyone goes to heaven. All our sins are forgiven because there is no sin problem because God made us in Genesis 1 and 2 that way. So again, there's half-truths, and we got to be so careful how we hear these things. Again, why did Jesus have to die on a cross if it wasn't for our sins? Basically, Jesus took the worst abuse humanity could do to him and loved us in spite of it. So we, in turn, learn to live this type of life for others. And again, now the teaching is reduced back to moralism and just, quote-unquote, living a good life. After progressives remove the doctrine of original sin, reject the need of salvation, and denying Jesus died on the cross for our sins, what do you have left? Not historical and not biblical Christianity. I love that First uh, Timothy 1.15. We would do better to trust the simple and clear message of the word. First Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we should be so thankful that he did and so thankful that he does. He didn't stop saving sinners at some point. He still, those that repent and turn from their sin will find salvation. And those that die in their sin, separated from Christ, will pay for that sin in a place of hell. Now, let me be clear. I wish everyone went to heaven when we died. I'm being honest. I really, that would be cool, great. 
But that's not exactly what would honor and glorify the Father. Because sin needs consequence. It needs a payment. And we can either trust in the payment of Christ for our sins, be forgiven, or we can try to pay for our own sins, which he will allow. But that will take us eternity in a place of hell. And we will never pay for our sins. We will be continually paying for our sin. Avi. So the only thing, I mean, and I agree with you. So from a Christian standpoint, I agree 100%. When I say that there's part of me that would love that everyone get to heaven in the flesh, right? Because someone could say, well, heaven is just that. They just said a magic prayer and got in. Because if somebody dies or is dying on their deathbed, I guess that's the only kind of deathbed you can have if you're dying on it. But if they're, if someone's on their deathbed and they committed all these horrendous acts, just this horrible human being, but atheists or even those that would claim to be agnostic would tell you, but you're telling me because 30 seconds before they died, they went, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. I trust you as my savior. Would you save me from my sins? I, I will live for you the next 30 seconds. Genuine conversion, genuine turning from sin. That person's in heaven, right? Okay. If, if they were converted, if whether we get converted at 10 and we live 75 years for Christ, or we get converted at 89 and we die at 89 in two minutes. That's the whole point of the story of the hired workman in the field. Whether you started working at 6 a.m. or 6 p.m., you all get the same reward. You all get eternal life. So those in the world will look at what we just said and go, I still can't. This is a wrestling for them. That doesn't seem fair to me. And that's why we have to explain that there is justice in that. Because Jesus Christ died for those sins. Jesus Christ paid for those sins. That's how a just God can also be a gracious God. That sin isn't just overlooked. Oh, yeah, you murdered seven people. Whatever. You're in. No, that sin was placed on the person of Jesus Christ, and he died for that sin. So God is just. But again, when we hear that, I've had people in the world tell me, yeah, 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 I'll just wait right before I die and I'll get saved. Because that's their mindset. Well, there's people up there that shouldn't be up there. But again, that's what we have to understand. Grace and justice are both present in the gospel. That's the cross, right? If we ever struggle with that, we have to see the cross and understand it that way. But yes, it's a good point to think about for sure. So when we think about this idea that affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness, the truth is the only way people will understand their full potential is to know they're broken. Receive Christ, then they will experience John 10, 10, the abundant life, right? Any other comments, questions, or thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. 
scripture and not jumping around and reading verses out of context. You can't interpret it any other way. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. And that's what I've always said. If you just read this book cover to cover, what would you end up with? Like, what, what God would you end up with? What gospel would you end up with? What's the problem? What's the issue that needs to be dealt with? It's sin. What's the solution? A Savior that came. And we've shared this before in tribes where they teach the Bible through with ethnos, starting in Genesis all the way through to the gospel. They will not talk about Jesus until they get to Jesus in the story. And there are times where we've heard missionaries say that when they got to the point of saying that this child was born, that people in the tribe never heard the Bible before, just literally going from Genesis through to the gospel or to the birth of Christ. They haven't even talked about who Jesus is, that he's going to die on the cross. They haven't even got to that part of the story. People in the tribe would stand and say, that's the Messiah. He's got to die for our sins. Like that just blow, that blows me away. And they just taught him the Bible. And these untrained people in, in religious things were like, mm, yeah, that makes sense. And one person they actually said was sitting in the back crying. And when they went to said, what's wrong? They said, man, as they were teaching through the ministry of Christ, they said, I love this guy, but I know he's got to die. Like he was even connecting the dots. And so again, you have to do so much to remove these teachings of scripture Rather, let's just take the word as it declares itself to be. Because, by the way, to know that you're a sinner and that Jesus died for your sins is not spiritual abuse. For me to know that you are a sinner and me to deny deny you the truth that Jesus came to die for your sins, that's spiritual abuse. That's costing you eternal life. And so, again, these these individuals, they think they're doing a noble thing, but they're just robbing people of, of the truth. And it's terrifying. And people are falling for it. And so I just want to encourage you, let's continue to be diligent. And I pray again that this is helpful to you and encouraging to you. But any other comments, questions, or thoughts? Sandra. I guess I struggle with wanting to sit under the teaching of somebody that's not going to be the whole life. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so what would be a way that I, if I wanted to, not that I'm planning this, Okay, so I'm not like planning any kind of a change in leadership. But um, if I wanted to do just that, just pick and choose some scriptures here and there, what's, the, what's one of the first things I have to do in the congregation or encourage the congregation to do or not do? Okay, yeah. Yep. I have to basically encourage them to not read the word. I have to really encourage them that I'm the voice that God will use. I have to say things like, God gave me a word this week. God spoke to me this week. And then I have to sprinkle in all these amazing little experiential stories. And sooner or later, most people will just start going, wow, wow, wow. And if you sprinkle in enough Bible, enough verses that sounds good, Well, it's got to be in the Bible. He wouldn't lie to us. He wouldn't lead us astray. And I would say some of these places where this teaching is going on, there are people who go, nope, I'm done. I'm checking out. And they take their Bible and they leave. But I think there's a vast majority of people that have these things we call itching ears, and they just want to be tickled. Mm-hmm. 
So, so the one example I'm thinking of right now where that happened, it came down to, I know the Bible says this, but I don't like how it's applied or I don't like what I see in the world. And I can't, in my mind, I can't connect those two dots. I can't believe that a God would do this, but the Bible says this. So because I become the authority, I have to remove the Bible because I just can't believe that. Yeah, and it's like we said, it's, it's that liberal thinking. I become, or culture becomes. Man, nobody really wants to talk about this in culture. This is just not popular anymore. So we must be the problem. Again, we let other things than the word dictate what we believe and why we believe it. And that's when we start to go down that road of, I have to get rid of these scriptures or completely walk away from the faith, if you will. Well, because we have those who can't see it, their scales, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, yeah. Yes. Yep. Because the more we're in the word, the more we're going to know the truth and identify the false teaching. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I, I know we're going over, so I apologize for that, but I appreciate all the discussion. I love it. Jesse. Yeah. Right. Right. So that's, that is the hypocrisy in progressive Christianity. And I, I referenced this in the first week that one of the statements or the sayings in progressive Christianity is we're all on a journey. We're all on a journey. We're all learning and growing. We can't really ever know. Just keep asking questions. Just keep encouraging the journey. But yet, once you say to them, well, I believe this about the Bible, they'll tell you, oh, no, you're wrong. And that's where I want to come back and say with, but you just said we're all on a journey. So you can't tell me I'm wrong. We're all growing and asking questions. So again, it's the appearance of intellectualism. It's the appearance of growing and and learning and maturing. 
But really, they have their core beliefs, and you can't challenge it. And if you challenge it, they will retaliate against that teaching because this is what I believe. But it, they don't want to say it directly. They got to sound more accepting and tolerant and understanding. And they will be very tolerant of Hinduism and Buddhism or any other native religion. But when you say definitively, the Bible says, now you've crossed the line. Because the problem is, the Bible lays out absolute truth. Black, white, Jesus or hell. And they don't want absolute truth. They want everything to be fluid, right? And changing. So I appreciate you saying that because that's true. It happens in those circles, very much so. It is cultish. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, some people call them truth statements or absolute statements. Yeah. But Jesse, I think, hit on something really important. She said how they feel versus how she feels. Right. If it's based in feeling and emotion, then I can say whatever. It's very fluid. Right. Because it should feel good. It should feel nice. It should feel kind. I think it was Bodhi Bakum that said the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. Right. <laughs> that means you can't say anything offensive that might hurt someone's feelings. What's the truth, though? Man, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. Does that mean that we are offensive in declaring the gospel? No. We don't got to be spiritual jerks just to try to make our point. We can still, as Peter says, what does Peter say? Give an answer for your faith, right? Give an answer for the hope in you, but do it what? With respect and humility. We don't walk in arrogantly like, I'm going to tell you. No. This is what the Bible says. And I love that Jesse said that. This is what the Bible says. So again, just food for thought on that, 100%. Agree. All right? Well, let's go ahead and uh, we'll close in prayer. Again, I love the conversation, guys. I pray that it's encouragement to you. Um, if anything, just to grow in our discernment and to grow in our understanding of these things. So when we hear these things, we'll be guarded against them. All right? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this evening. And I thank you for your church, for your people. I uh, thank you for the discussion for the back and forth, Lord, what, a, what an encouragement it is, Lord. And Father, I do want to reaffirm again, as we've tried to say every week, that I am not saying these things um, as an attack against any one person or an attack against individuals. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to know that we can speak out against false teaching. We can identify those that are false teachers if their message does not align with Scripture. And that's not me attacking the person, Lord, but we are called to be discerning of the messages that people preach. And so, Lord, I may avoid listening to a certain individual, not because I have anything against that person. Because that person, Lord, if they don't know Christ, needs Jesus Christ. And I pray that they would come to know you. I pray that somebody in their area of influence would share the gospel with them and they'd be pricked by the Spirit and drawn to repentance. But, Lord, that doesn't mean we need to accept the teaching of that individual. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to continue to walk that line, that our attitudes would be what Peter lays forth, Lord, that we would share the answer 
for the hope that is in us, Lord, with respect and with humility. Lord, speaking the truth in love, not compromising, not backing down, Lord. And Father, I truly believe that there are probably many more in this room that, like Jesse shared, that have those that they care about, people that matter to them. Maybe it's family members or friends or just loved ones that are falling for this type of teaching. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the right attitude, a continued understanding of grace. Lord, again, it doesn't mean we go along with it. It doesn't mean we don't speak out against it. But Lord, help us to have the right attitude that we would see them as you see them. That as long as there's breath in their lungs, there is the potential for them to come to Christ. That they could repent at any moment and you could save them. Because no one, it doesn't matter who they are, no one is beyond your reach. If there's breath in their lungs and the gospel is preached, the spirit works. And Lord, if they would choose by faith to receive salvation, Lord, you would be glorified. And so Lord, help us to just have the right mindset around these things. Help us to not get bitter or allow our emotions to take over. But that we would also just, Lord, use wisdom and discernment in the things that we hear. Help us to be in your word. Help us to understand more of what this life should look like as, we follow, as we're followers of Christ. Again, Lord, thank you for the potential that we have in you that we can display your grace to those around us in everything we do. May your word be on our lips and may we proclaim your gospel this week. Father, we love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.